Welcome to the FFI Practitioner Podcast. Today, we're pleased to bring you a conversation with Adam Ifshin, CEO of DLC Management, and Rocky Lee DeWitt, Professor of Management in the Grossman School of Business at the University of Vermont. At the 2023 Global Conference, Adam and Rocky will present the session, Evolving the Entrepreneurial Culture in a Changing Talent Landscape. Adam, why is this such an important topic at this time? I actually came at this from two areas. My formal advanced undergraduate study was in economic demography. I had been aware of certain emerging trends in demographics and immigration policy that were negatively impacting on a macro level the availability of skilled and talented workforces in many parts of the American economy for years. And that it was only growing as baby boomers aged out of the workforce. Other industries became perhaps the darling of people, young people coming out of college. The number of college graduates was was going to start to shrink pretty dramatically due to a decline in um, in the total fertility rate, you know, 20 some odd years prior. Um, but at the same time, I was growing a business that for a decade uh, grew at about 70% a year compounded. And, and in a business that was not particularly sought after for young talent, and we saw the aging of the, the, the experiential cohort in the industry. So those three things sort of all collided together hard, starting really in the mid-2010s, 2013, 14, 15, uh, between calling off the IPO that we had planned to do in 20, we had doubled the size of the business between 2005 and 2010. Uh, and we had doubled the size of the business again between 2011 and call it 2017, 2018. There's a limit to how much you can get in terms of better experience, retention of high quality performing people and productivity enhancements. Uh, there, are, there are sort of you know fundamental laws of diminishing returns at some point in time from those levers. Uh, and we had an aging out cohort on top of that in certain roles. And the growth, which was the imperative for me as the entrepreneur at the helm of the ship, came first, and I realized that we were going to have to take a radically different view to talent if we were going to be able to source the caliber of people we wanted to grow the business and to achieve the financial success that growth from our perspective afforded us an opportunity to access. So I've been looking at this at a very long time. The trends have been there for a very long time, but the exigency in my own business, which has been there for probably the better part of a decade now, only grows both the more successful the business is, the more those demographic trends um, accelerate and dominate. And then, you know, it's, it's hard to not answer the question without understanding the impact that COVID had on those demographic trends, right? You saw a whole, you know, a whole bunch of call it baby boomers who, you know, for whom 65 was the new 50, uh, God bless them. And they were hanging in and they wanted to work and they, they were by and large, really, really talented team members. Uh, but for many of them, COVID said, wait a minute, why am I doing this? I have enough money. Uh, I've planned for my retirement. Why am I taking the risk of continuing to work? Uh, and that really put a lot of pressure on that sort of, that's what in my view what had a large role in causing that that wage spike we saw coming out of COVID in 21, 22, and all the things that went along with it, wage spiral inflation, the quote unquote great resignation, quiet quitting, all of the pastiche terms that the mainstream business media put on it. And I think that we were way ahead of this curve, thank thank goodness. But I think it's a, a, a core business challenge for any business in the United States today. Now let's turn to Rocky. This encompasses a wide swath of businesses and family businesses, right? We're not just limiting it to one particular industry or one particular mode of employment, are we? 
No, we're not at all. Um, I think the the thing that Adam drew attention to that is so important is that people are finding other sorts of jobs sexier, more interesting, you know, the growth in the digital realm and, and that kind of work was attracting individuals, yet predominant employers are oftentimes in the business of making things, servicing things, you know, actually have real cash flow as opposed to a burn rate. I think I think also, Jordan, it's really important, you know, we, we hear various numbers all the time, but there's no doubt that family businesses represent a really, really substantial part of the macro GDP in the American economy. So I think it it would be um, it would be overly simplistic to assume that they don't face the same kind of challenges that large organizations do, more public, more institutionalized businesses do. You know, one of the things that I had sensed over time, and, and I'm sure Rocky will go into more depth about this a little bit later, is that there is an intensity of focus for very good reasons in the family business consultancy world and academic world on quote unquote family business primary issues. But sometimes there are overwhelming trends in the marketplace that have to be finessed into those other equally important issues because they inter there's significant interplay. They can have significant ramifications on those primary family business issues if you don't know how to navigate them, particularly around building what I believe is the most important thing that any entrepreneur needs to do and any CEO needs to do in American business today, which is to, to build a world-class, team-oriented, holistic, right, team-focused culture first and foremost. Adam, tell us more about how your company transitioned to uh, accommodate this issue. It, it, it took a long time. I'm a, I'm a big believer in taking lots of small chances. I knew that this could not be solved by simply paying a co one cohort of people more money. Upping your retention rate alone wouldn't do it. You know, a better snack bar wouldn't do it. <laughs> um, you know, a, a total remote work policy wouldn't do it. And the answer is, Jordan, we ultimately, we ultimately said, okay, what do we – I looked at my senior leadership team. And, and, and by the way, COVID provided us with an opportunity to really dig in and do this first remotely and then socially distanced on my back patio where we met incessantly about this. But what we sought to do, what we've sought to do and we've achieved is we built a culture that's a people first culture. In many family businesses, the non-family members take that to mean that it is a family first culture, right? We built a people first culture. And how did we do that? We did lots of different things. We invested an insane amount of time and money in developing young talent. We knew from the demographics inside our industry that not enough young people were coming into our industry and that our industry was aging. I was in leadership of our trade association. I had all that demographic data, which was not public, and I could see it in my own, in my own business. So we started recruit. We hired someone solely to hire, recruit, train, and identify young people coming out of predominantly undergraduate business schools, but also undergraduate liberal arts programs at schools that we thought we could afford people from, 
and where people weren't necessarily thinking that they were going on to an Ivy League graduate education or to Wall Street. Uh, and we've, we've, we invested heavily, whether that was at UVM, SUNY Binghamton, Pace University, Monmouth in New Jersey, I mean, all over, University of Wisconsin, Kelly School at Indiana. Uh, we went out and we really, we sought to leverage our happiest employees at their alma maters and other ways to get into places. And we built training programs across our largest disciplines, which include accounting, property management, leasing, which is our sales function, and financial analytics. And we built training programs, even though we're only about 130 people today, and we were probably only about 80 people when we started this, we took the time and made the effort to build and invest in those. So that was one. The second thing was we sought to build a world-class 21st century culture, right? The, nobody says employee here. We only have team members. You don't get hired. You either get drafted if you're coming out of school or you get signed as a free agent if you're coming mm -hmm. with an experiential base, right? And we said to the leadership of the company, you need to think about yourself as building what could be very transient in today's day and age, right? Workforce and how do you make it a little less transient? Find me, find me the guy who always gets signed to be the sixth man on a great head coach's basketball team. You need to find people who care about those things. It's not just about money. It's not just about perks. Everybody needs to have the belief themselves, perception is reality, that they can have a great career here. Otherwise, they are going to be susceptible to an incredibly fluid incredibly transparent job market. You leave here, you end up taking a job somewhere else. Here, it, the imperative is on our leadership team to give you the opportunity to have a great career. And that's really the core of the culture. You know, being kind of side by side with him while he was doing this, and at the same time, being in an academic institution and watching these kind of generational changes in students coming to school, coming out of school, you know, there are still people, right, given the changes in employment in the world, who are going to be very transactionally self-centered oriented. The challenge for an employer or an organization or an entity is to kind of identify the people who fit with what their organization is about and what they're trying to achieve. In Adam's organization, knowledge and experience and how to do deals really matters. A lot of organizations have that same thing. There, you have people who are in boundary spanning roles, who have repeat customers, who have repeat suppliers, and you need that enduring base of talent to make your organization go. Your piece is finding individuals who relish that kind of responsibility, that kind of accountability, that kind of contribution to the organization. And so that means you need to spend more time and more effort on figuring out who individuals are and what makes their brains work the way it does. Hence the role of internships, right? And ways of having individuals suggest under other individuals who are like them for employment or teammate opportunity. 
the idea of going after talent, not waiting for talent to come to you, seems to be part of this theme. That's a huge part of the theme. I was motivated to go do things like like, like teach with Rocky and others at UVM and at other places. I've been fortunate enough to be asked to guest lecture and teach a number of places. But I did it because I found it very enlightening. It was a learning opportunity for me as well, first and foremost. But make no mistake about it, um, I was always on the lookout for talent. <laughs> and I am always, I am constantly on the lookout for talent. I have, you know, our our leadership cohort here is probably solidly a decade younger than the average age of all of our competitive companies in the space, whether they be public or private. And I would suspect, and there's, it's very hard to find data on this, so this is an anecdotal comment. Admittedly, I would suspect that family businesses in my space, the average age of my leadership cohort is probably two decades younger than the family businesses, which tend to be, at least in our business, more traditional, more hierarchical, uh, less likely to experiment or uh, think about taking a more aggressive view about cultural development and career development for non-family members. So I think it's, you know, one of the things that I saw in very clearly in the global financial crisis, I had three adolescents during the global financial crisis, and I saw them and all of their friends. And what you have now is you have a generation and a half in the American workforce now who have a fundamental different view about the social contract between an employer and an employee. The global financial crisis broke that perception because many, many people who were then adolescents to young adults, right, and their parents had been careerists at a, at a single company or perhaps just a couple of places. IBM, GE, United Technologies, just to quote a few in areas where we do business. And all of a sudden, you know, mom or dad or both are out of work in 2009 because they had spent their entire career at Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns in New York is another example. And all of a sudden, you've got to go borrow the money if you want to go to college. you got to go, you know, mom and dad are not going to be able to help you with that. You, you watch mom and or dad out of work for two, three, four years because they're in their late 40s, early 50s, and suddenly they're not that attractive in the labor market. And those, those parents went from teaching those children, hey, go to work for a great company. That great company is going to take care, help you take care of your career to being don't trust them. Don't trust them with your career. <laughs> Whatever you do, learn from them and move on. Breaking that cycle requires an extraordinary cultural and leadership commitment by an institution and an organization that has to be very forward thinking. And that we, we still fight that every day. And most of the talent that comes to us that's young and stays comes from more unconventional backgrounds as a result of that. So before we close out, let me ask you to both comment on this, and this will be a perfect way to wrap. Succession is something that should be at the top of mind for every family business all the time because it's, it's a fact of life. But wouldn't we want to partner succession now with talent mining because that's equally as important what I'm gleaming from our conversation? You know, I've spent quite a bit of time around the succession literature, succession experience from back in the late 70s with the work I was doing in Ohio. To me, it's always been talent was the question. Succession was just one of the kind of levers that was getting pulled around talent. That's my perspective, but I recognize that that perspective is not common 
So I feel like I'm having to go back and play that old 33 RPM record that I ran back in the late 70s again in today's environment. And the demographic circumstance, as well as let's just call it the cultural changes in society, are, are less likely to fall on deaf ears now. We have a first we have a firsthand situation. I have I have three children. One uh, decided after her grandfather passed away, my oldest child, Anya, to come into the business. But we had very very candid and explicit conversations in advance of her coming in, and she was extremely candid with me that a she didn't know that she wanted to ever run the business. Two. She didn't know if she would ever be qualified to run the business. Her rationale for coming into the business was is that she wanted to be qualified to understand the business and all of its aspects such that, God forbid, something happened to myself and her mother, she would be in a position where she could form her own opinions and take her own, keep her own counsel with respect to investment decisions. Right? So she did not come in saying, hey, I want to I run it. She did not come in with that sort of traditional oldest sibling uh, hierarchical primogenitor-esque view that has opened the door to dovetail and mesh incredibly well with what we're talking about, Jordan, because if you're going to give everybody the opportunity to have a career and that defines your culture, that better apply to both family and non-family members. And I have a very clear understanding with my daughter that she may not be the CEO here one day, right? Because there may be somebody more qualified now or may who may come into the organization at a later date. And what the organization is going to do is it's going to make the best decision for the organization and it will figure out how to dovetail that with what's the best decision for the family. But if you don't make the best decision for the organization, in my view, that is going to lead to some unhappy, difficult conversations amongst the family at some point in time in the future. And I think that there is a way to mesh these two together. But I think it's critically important that the people who have so much uh, to say in many, many good ways to family business leaders and to families with fa multi-generational family businesses that they have to consider this and they have to factor this into their thinking. And, you know, at least historically, much of the thinking has, best, has been more um, family-centric than it has been leadership-centric. Question is basically, how can family enterprise advisors guide their clients through this changing talent landscape? What simple advice in the short time that we have would you like to impart? Real simple. Yeah, most family business advisors are working with Davis's three-circle model, and they're heavily focused on family and ownership and kind of light on the employee bubble. So we're trying to draw attention to employment and the work world going forward. Like any good advisor, you start with yourself, right? First, reflect on your own work history and what, you, where you've worked and why you've worked and how you do it. How does that inform the assumptions you make about how people work and put it brashly? Like, do you have a clue about what's going on out there? Second, once you've familiarized yourself with different models of employment, work with your existing clients to review and plan for how over the course of the next decade, they will access and develop the talent they need, right? And that is family talent, right, who participates in the work of the organization, family who participates in the governance of the family's wealth, and non-family individuals who can participate as workers, owners, and even members of, right, an extended family. 
in some, they may have engaged us in an advisory role. If they don't voluntarily tell us about their approach to talent, don't be reticent. Ask them about how they're viewing people in the organization, where they're coming from, how they're going to get developed, how they're going to get compensated. You know, insert yourself into the conversation, but recognize you may need somebody on your advisory team who's uh, more attuned to hearing that employment sphere as they work with an organization. To use the Davis model as an anchoring point, the reality is, is that overlap between family and senior non-family leaders, that intersection area in the model is much bigger than it appears in an equal weight model, in our view. And that the demographic trends that are going on are forcing, in our view, the need for advisors to think about that space intensely, innovatively, shot through the lens of, if you can't figure out that intersection, your ability to maximize the success, however you want to define success, EBITDA, cash flow, growth, enterprise value of the family enterprise is not going to be maximized in our view. It's incredibly important that advisors spend even more time in expanding the thought bubble that goes in that overlap. Thank you to Adam Ifshin and Rocky Lee DeWitt for our discussion about the effect of the changing talent landscape on entrepreneurial culture. To learn more about FFI membership and the upcoming October conference in New York, go to www.ffi.org. This is Jordan Rich. Thank you for listening.